Okay, don't get too excited, but the StoryCast is back for a quick holiday special. Someday, hopefully sooner than later, we'll be back for good with a regular show. Life's just gotten in the way lately to produce a good quality show, but we will be back. For now, I'm wedged between ballet dresses in my daughter's closet to get some good audio. For now, enjoy this rebroadcast of two of our favorite holiday episodes released in the show's run between 2015 to 2018. First, you'll hear Between the Lines, a story of hope against all odds from the Western Front, the Christmas truce of 1914. Then, enjoy our most streamed episode ever, Kings, Drinks, and Lovers, one of my favorites, tales from behind the scenes of a few Christmas Carol classics. And can I just say, wherever you are in this wild 2020, physically, emotionally, or otherwise, I hope you take care of yourself, take care of those around you, and try to find the best way to enjoy and spread some holiday cheer. But for now, enjoy this encore of The StoryCast. This is The StoryCast. I'm Russell Silva. In some ways, the events of our world are not so different from a jack-in-the-box, with time turning that flimsy handle, ever deliberate, ever cautious, ever anticipating, the result that seems so predetermined to pop up. With that in mind, the question becomes, what if you threw a war and no one actually showed up? What do you really know about World War I? As we approach the holiday season, it's true that nothing could be less festive and the horror of war. Yet in 1914, for one night, men charged to kill each other, suddenly laid down their arms in peace for the idea of a thing, a thing simple but so often forgotten, a sense of shared humanity. The First World War, the Great War, the war to end all wars. According to one soldier's first-hand account, it was more than just a war, it was the end of the world. Just a few months had transpired since the infamous assassination of Archduke Ferdinand had ignited the European powder keg of alliances, and the central powers of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire launched its numbing assault on the Allies, the Russians, the French, and the United Kingdom. The conflict and its casualties had been instantly devastating. For this war that began with the Old War cavalry horsemen clad in Napoleonic feathered bicorn gave way to the modern warfare of defeated frames of human beings clad in pith helmets, launching explosive shells and poisonous gases at fellow human beings. During the first five months of this terrible war, millions had already died, and for very little, as the two warring fashions had reached a stalemate, a front line separated by not much more than 50 paces, running from Belgium's North Sea piercing Europe to the Swiss frontier, this heavily armored precipice forced rundown soldiers to dig into trenches and take up defensive positions with no hope in sight, neither side able to advance at all. Full-out attack deteriorated into deadlock and atrophied into a bitter stalemate, each side facing the simple stretch of no man's land, an impasse of earth made of muddy soup and wet mist, with each side fighting simultaneously for everything and nothing, perched within this hypothetical chasm. Many of the dead even remained unburied, some impaled on barbed wire or floating to the surface of mucky waters. The fighters on both sides, though killing machines, were but common men, as millions of highly trained soldiers had already been killed. 
leaving the men holding these artificial lines as commoners, fulfilling their civic duties for six weeks at a time. And since the world had seen so many casualties, most of these emerging soldiers were undertrained, unenthusiastic amateurs, men lacking ideological fervor, men war-weary. Many Germans called to serve had been waiters, barbers, and cabbies as immigrants in Great Britain, and then summoned home to fight opposite the men who were their friends and neighbors. But this, this is not a war story. It's a peace story, a story of a thing, a thing that started with a candlelit tree, a handshake of cigarettes, a song belted out for the world to hear. For it was in late December of 1914 when the world began to redefine its common humanity and humanization was at a premium in the sloppy trenches lit by candles, trenches filled with rats and disease, slop and dung, the dead and the nearly dead, and the men who perhaps wished they were. Sleep was impossible, breathing too, when the poisonous gas drifted your way, and the constant shelling from both sides was deadly, loud, and otherworldly. The desolation of the front lines was often compared to the surface of the moon, But all of this isolation actually took place in close quarters. Within the proximity of the front lines, so near that the two sides would often jeer each other, sharing words of abuse and joke, and even the occasional newspaper tossed over to the enemy. For the soldiers, be they enemies, often jeered each other as pallies, calling each other by name. Jerry or Fritz were the Germans, and Tommy or Jacques were the Allies. This odd congenial attitude that reared its head could be used to the benefit of survival. Men were known to hold hands up to encourage a brief respite so both sides could resurface to collect their dead. And according to some reports, to meet in the middle at times and bury their comrades together while bartering over cigarettes. But any attempts at fraternization was strictly discouraged. The sharing of words, souvenirs, and rations was forbidden and investigated. The top brass propagandized that any slackening in warring action could damage the morale of the army's sacrificial attitude of fighting for survival. But it's just this belief that gets at the heart of the war itself. Because once again, what if you went ahead and threw a war, but no one showed up? The men who fight and their fingers on the triggers are always more mighty than political decisions and bureaucratic agenda. Reports of consortium with the enemy angered leadership as public opinion of the war grew dim amidst the horrific amount of casualties. Around the world, populist anti-war movements rose up, even leading to the Russian Revolution and the rise of communism. And in many ways, sentiment up and down the front across Europe began to mirror this change in opinion. These men, physically close, but a world apart, perhaps began to see themselves as more similar than they were different. As Christmas Eve of 1914 neared, the incessant rain gave way to frost, creating a placid white across the stripe of land between the two sides. With the muck and wet so severe in the trenches, a hard frost was a worthy Christmas wish. From here, the facts of the Christmas truce are muddy and foggy, just as in the war. 
Yet the accounts of that 1914 Christmas Eve are etched in time through confirming reports found in first-hand journals, letters sent home, and survivors' memoirs. Maybe it started with the arrival of Christmas packages sent to men serving on the front lines, gifts from governments and kings and candy companies, boxes containing well-needed rations and precious cigarettes, sweets, chocolates, greeting cards, or even simple creature comforts like earmuffs. Or maybe the truce began when it took to the skies in a well-documented assault from the Flying Royal Corps, dropping not artillery, but a padded, brandy-filled plum pudding on one German airfield. The German response? A careful airdrop of rum bottles. And in other parts, the German summoning of a Belgian priest to meet, not for the return of the dead, but for an apology and return of a Mother Mary statue damaged in the ransacking of a village. Or maybe it all started with the Germans, who began placing bombs, trees passed up to the front line by hand from thousands of men in the supporting lines behind the front. The trees were placed and lit by candle to the enemy's bewilderment. Even more trees were dragged into the murky no-man's land between the lines and placed into that barren wasteland amongst cheers and jeers absent gunfire. Or maybe it began at sundown, when up and down the zigzagging mirroring trenches of more than 400 miles, in scattered places, singing began to shoot up into the air, as gunfire resided in a strikingly strange silence of war, a silence that lifted up human voices alongside a concertine accordion. There were folk songs of national pride and religious reverie, and such shouts as, Down with the war, and No war, and Germans calling out, Happy Christmas, Englishmen! No shoot tonight, sing tonight! And in other places, signboards with a similar message reading, You no fight, we no fight! And others responding, simply announcing, Merry Christmas! And then from both sides, Christmas carols, up and down the lines, the hesitant standing down continued, with collaborating reports of shots ceasing on each moment that Silent Night, or Stealin' Nacht, was sung out and joined in chorus by both sides, a chorus compared by participants to that of drunken oxen, and accounts of English cheering and celebratory firing not toward their enemies, but into the sky, upon the lighting of each German Tenenbaum in the trench dugouts. Just as another soldier's account tells the story of the British soldiers calling out for a return to war, and the German troops' sudden response of the singing of O Tenenbaum, one soldier told his mother in a letter sent home that the intent of the singing was not goodwill, but rather an assault by carols. So the Christmas truce of 1914 had begun. The artillery had fallen silent. Men on both sides laid down arms to join in an unimaginable, spontaneous merriment. This unofficial, momentary fragility spread up and down the front like wildfire. And just as any fire does, it moved and grew into something bigger. Germans shouted, Tommy, come over here, as the English responded. Fritz, you come over here. And then, not everywhere, but here and there, Men ascended from the filth and death of their holes to light cigarettes that so dampened the dread of war, and armed there on the ground not with guns, but with those smokes and cakes and wine and rations, as they ventured out into the no man's land between the lines. And that significant assembly of the opposing sides 
led to handshakes and the trading of food and tobacco and gifts and songs and jokes, as if each side so yearned for, more than ever, an end to the fighting, for some sense of humanity and normalcy, for what is less argumentative than the sharing of a song. So from beyond the trench parapets, men gathered amongst the lighted trees, warring soldiers conjoled and sang chorus, and men from both sides shared gifts of their most prized commodities and souvenirs that reminded them of home. Opposing burial parties joined each other in retrieval of and services for the dead, and the sides even swapped prisoners. There were soccer games reported, and even in areas where no frivolous behavior would be recorded, both sides mostly held fire to give each other time to recover and bury the dead that Christmas Eve. And just like those lives, and our own, all things eventually come to an end. In most parts, that truce lasted the night, in others, till New Year's, and the war would continue for another four long years, and in many ways never ended as the eventual disarmament and treaty would propel Europe and the rest of the world into another horror just two decades ahead. But perhaps this moment of truce began the first glimmer of an evolving attitude of live and let live. And even though many, many more would die in that war, and others still do in wars today, on that one silent Christmas night, in 1914, many men lived and would live to tell its tale of a thing, of a shared experience of common humanity, of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And one man there, Scottish combatant Alfred Anderson, who just passed in 2005 at the age of 109, recalls in an interview, All I'd heard for two months on the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, right across the land as far as you could see. We shouted Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. The silence ended early in the afternoon and the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. The Storycast was written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. You heard fantastic music from Circus Marcus, David Zetste, Lee Rosever, and Maya Salovi. The Storycast will return on New Year's Eve with another chapter of life that tells the story of us through a common thread. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. This month's show is coming to you a little bit early and just in time for a little holiday cheer. 
Most of the content in this episode originally aired December of 2015, but things have been retuned and remastered to fill your eardrums this holiday season. Enjoy. It's the season for lots of cliched Christmas songs rumpa-pum-pumming our eardrums, from your Pandora and Spotify playlists to those grating shopping mall sound systems. There are so many traditional songs, from those nostalgic yet worn-out classics to the trendy rehashed reincarnations made re-famous by the pop superstar flavors of the week. I'll be honest, to me, Christmas music is okay in easy enough doses at the right time of the year. But beyond the carols and the gift giving, outside the figgy pudding and the noses so bright, nestled within the old standards are people with interesting stories to tell, mysterious people living or imagined whose tales embody the songs you may hold dear. I submit to you, Exhibit A. Good King Winsless. He was a real guy. And he really was good. And he was actually a king. Good King Winsless is a popular Christmas tale telling of a Czech king going on a long journey, braving the harsh winter weather to give alms to a peasant on the Feast of Stephen, which is a holiday of giving celebrated the day after Christmas, even in Europe today. It's a bank holiday. During his journey, the good king's page with him is about to give up the struggle against the cold winter and only finds the strength to continue by following in the king's footsteps step by step through the deep snow. This song, mostly legend, is based on the life of St. Winslas I, otherwise known as the Duke of Bohemia. He ruled in Czechoslovakia from the year 907 to 935. The song itself was written almost 900 years later by English hymn writer John Mason Neal. As the story goes, Winslas was considered a martyr and given sainthood after his death in the 10th century. A cult of Winsless even started up in Bohemia and England, honoring his life. The many biographies of Winsless's life would bring a new concept to the High Middle Ages of Rex Justice, or the Righteous King. That is, a monarch whose power stems not from bloodline or title, but from their charity. A 12th century priest wrote of Winsless, but his deeds I think you know of better than I can tell you. For as is read in his passion, no one doubts that every night, rising from his noble bed, with bare feet and only one chamberlain, he went around to God's churches and gave alms to widows, orphans, those in prison, and those afflicted by every difficulty. So much so that he was considered not a prince, but a father, a father of all the wretched. Several centuries later, Pope Pius II would attempt to literally follow in King Winslas's footsteps by walking 10 miles in the ice and snow as an act of thanksgiving. Just as the message of the song goes, that if we follow in the footsteps of those giving of themselves selflessly to others, we too will find new life. In his master's step he trod, where the snow lay dented, heat was in the very sod which the saint had printed. Therefore men be sure, wealth or rank possessing, Ye who now will bless the poor shall find yourselves blessing. So if our first carol told the tale of the rich and powerful, 
traveling great distances to give themselves to the poor, our next song tells a similar story, but a little different. What in the world is a wassail, anyways? Composed in 1850, the Old English traditional song, Here We Come a Wassailing, refers to an alcoholic beverage, wassail, and the act of wassailing, encanting songs whilst begging for wassail, singing for your booze, if you will, goes a little something like this. Tales from the 19th century paint a giving Christmas spirit, encouraging the rich to be a little more generous than usual. Bands of beggars and orphans would dance their way through the snowy streets of England, offering to sing good cheer and a foretell of good fortune. If only the Lord of the house would offer them a drink from his large wassail bowl, or a penny, or a pork pie, or let them stand for a few minutes beside the warmth of his hearth. And for the wassail bowl itself, it was a hearty combination of hot ale, apples, spices, mead, just alcoholic enough to warm those singers' tingling toes and fingers. So thus, the idea of wassailing was born from the ancient custom of workers visiting orchards before harvest to sing to the trees. The house visiting wassail became a tradition across England, with the wassailers going door to door singing carols throughout the Christmas season. The wassail itself was a reciprocal exchange between the feudal lords and their peasants, a polite request for charitable giving and not begging. This point is made in the song, Here We Come a Wassailing, when the wassailers inform the lord of the house that we are not daily beggars that beg from door to door, but we are friendly neighbors whom you have seen before. The lord of the manor would give food and drink to the peasants in exchange for their blessing and goodwill. Love and joy come to you, and to you, your wassail too, and God bless you and send you a happy new year. The song was purged by the church and recoined Here We Come a Christmasing, and then the super Americanized version Here We Come a Caroling. The American version even cleansed the booze from this original third verse. Call up the butler of this house, put on his golden ring, let him bring us up a glass of beer, and better we shall sing. The moral of the story, Christmas and giving and booze all go hand in hand. So open up those coffers, you filthy rich wasslers, and tip another one back for the spirit of Christmas. Oh, Jingle Bells, a Christmas favorite. Well, originally it wasn't even a Christmas song. It's a wintertime song, a song about sleighing season, supposedly written by composer James Lord Pierpont in the fall of 1857. There's quite a bit of dispute over the authorship of Jingle Bells, with another account claiming it was first sung by a Sunday school children's choir for Thanksgiving. A plaque that rests today at 19 High Street in the center of Medford Square in Massachusetts commemorates the birthplace of Jingle Bells and claims that Pierpont wrote the song there in 1850 at what was then the Simpson Tavern. Well, in that year, history would tell us Pierpont was actually the music director of a church in Savannah, Georgia. So something doesn't add up. Yet whenever, wherever, and why ever, Jingle Bells was written and composed, likely by Pierpont, 
The song actually tells the story of a Miss Fanny Bright, as laid out in the second often left out verse. A day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride, and soon Miss Fanny Bright was seated by my side. The horse was lean and lank. Misfortune seemed his lot. He got into a drifted bank, and then we got up sought. Now there is no record of who Miss Fanny Bright was or why she's even in this song. So was Miss Fanny Bright simply a fictional character made up to imagine the song's narrative? Or was the fair damsel skimming along the trees with her quarter a real person? A dame who had stolen Lord Pierpont's heart, lost to history, yet their tale preserved through this telling of a sleigh crash. Jingle Bells was often heard as a drinking song at parties. People would jingle the ice in their glasses as they sung out about a sleigh ride that gave an unescorted couple a rare moment to be alone, unchaperoned, tucking through snow-covered woods and fields and all the opportunities that such would afford. So maybe, just maybe, Jingle Bells is really the story of the lovely Miss Fanny Bright and the illicit affair she shared with one love-struck James Lord Pierpont one autumn in 1857 dashing through the snowy hills of Massachusetts until their sleigh overturned. So whatever you're celebrating this season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, or just going out for a sleigh ride in one way or another, have a happy holiday and a happy new year and take care of each other out there. The Storycast is written and produced by myself. I tweet at Russell Silva. Today you heard music from Lee Rosever, the York Minister Choir, and the Clare College Singers. So until next time, think, feel, and wonder a little bit more. <laughs>